he was the serial slayer who terrorized New York. But did Son of Sam act alone? For more than 20 years, this case has remained unsolved. A mystery so troubling, we've decided to launch our own investigation. Officially, there were six murders, but there may actually have been as much as three times that number. We went to the police files, we interviewed witnesses, and analyzed the crime scenes. Our investigation was conducted with an open-minded attitude, an attitude that may have been lacking in the official investigations. Here with the beginning of our results is correspondent Alexander Johnson. Geraldo, this is the setting, the post-war boomtown of Vallejo, just north of San Francisco. It was 1968, and young people growing up in this tough blue-collar town could hear the acid rock beat of Haight-Ashbury just 20 miles across the bay. And it was hard to resist. LSD and other mind-altering drugs and the mysterious attraction of the occult, which was spreading worldwide from the epicenter. It was here, just five days before Christmas, that the Zodiac struck and killed. His first victims in Vallejo were a teenage couple, Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday, shot dead in a dark and desolate lover's lane. Retired Vallejo Times reporter Dave Peterson. About all that was left the next day was blood on the ground, and there was a lot of that. Investigators told me that it was the bloodiest scene that, that they had come across. Seven months passed, then around midnight on July 4th, the killer struck again in a deserted golf course parking lot, less than two miles away from the Jensen Faraday murder site. Once again, the target was a young couple, Mike Majot, who would survive, and Darlene Ferrin, D to her friends. Former Vallejo police officer Richard Hoffman was first at the scene. She was obviously dead. I, I, I checked uh, uh, the neck for a pulse, and uh, she was dead by the rear wheel was uh, the other victim. He was trying to say something to me, but uh, uh, he couldn't He couldn't speak. It, it, it was just a gurgle. Doctors at Kaiser Hospital pronounced Arlene dead on arrival at 12.38 a.m. Two minutes later, Vallejo police received a menacing call reporting a double murder. The anonymous caller also bragged about the murders of Faraday and Jensen. Investigative author Maury Terry believes that the call was a deliberate diversion. The phone call immediately linked in the murders of Faraday and Jensen and led the police to believe that it was a psychopath at work and it stopped the search for a real motive in the murder of Darlene Farron. Fear paralyzed Vallejo. There were whispers that Dee's murder was linked to drugs and possibly to a satanic cult. She seemed to be spending more money than would have come from her wait waitress job. And uh, she also, along with her former husband, delved deeply into the occult. Then in early August, three Bay Area newspapers received chilling letters. The author took credit for the murders of David, Betty Lou, and Darlene. Each letter also contained a mysterious cryptogram. One was signed with a cross-circled symbol. In the next letter, the night-stalking marauder gave his name, Zodiac. The name Zodiac was an occult name. And in addition, the letters also contain numerous references to the occult. Seven weeks later, Zodiac moved north to Lake Berryessa. Brian Hartnell, a pre-law student, and his classmate, Cecilia Ann Shepard, were ambushed in broad daylight by a knife-wielding killer. Cecilia died of multiple stab wounds, but a critically injured Hartnell survived to describe his macabre encounter. The executioner wore ceremonial clothing. It proved later through investigation that he had virtually copied the ritual hood of Aleister Crowley, a notorious British black magician. 
Crowley, who died in 1947, is regarded by many as the father of modern-day ritual magic and occultism, and over the years has provided inspiration for numerous satanic crimes in America. Zodiac also made another taunting call to the police, claiming credit for this latest attack. Two weeks later, on October 11th, he struck for the fourth time. Paul Stein, a cabbie, picked up his murderous passenger here in San Francisco's theater district and drove to his death in this residential neighborhood a few miles away. Stein was brutally slain, execution style, by a single bullet to the head. Gus Carreras, retired San Francisco homicide inspector, and his partner John Fotinos worked on the case. We found three youngsters who had been peering out the window that particular evening. Uh, we brought them in and questioned them t at length and uh, eventually we had a composite drawing made of the particular individual that they had seen. This time, the Zodiac narrowly eluded authorities. The next day, in a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, Zodiac enclosed a fragment of Stein's blood-soaked shirt and mocked police for failing to catch him. More ominously, he threatened to wipe out an entire school bus of children. In the months following, the Zodiac wrote numerous letters to the San Francisco Chronicle claiming new victims. Some felt his boasts were idle. Many did not. Members of numerous law enforcement agencies spent infinite man-hours on the investigation. Retired Vallejo detective John Lynch. The FBI was deeply involved in this. Nothing would have pleased John Edgar Hoover any more than to have the FBI solve that case. To this day, the Zodiac remains at large. So here are the questions. Obviously, who is this homicidal maniac? Is he still on the loose? Were these random murders or were they planned executions? Well, we're about to provide you with some answers. Black magic. There was evidently occult involvement in the case. A dead blonde. They had saw something that they shouldn't have seen. And a mysterious stranger. He wouldn't ever talk with anybody except Darlene. In a moment, we piece together the puzzle of the maniac in the mask. The victims in California's Zodiac killings are, of course, long in their graves. But this 23-year-old mystery still has an eerie hold on many Bay Area residents, and indeed on the rest of us. Here again is Alexander. Was there more than one Zodiac? Did he act alone? Was he a random psycho killer, as police believe? Or did he know some of his victims? Our investigations show that for more than 20 years, Bay Area police have looked in the wrong place while pursuing the wrong theory. There was evidently occult involvement in the case. The Zodiac was not a random psycho killer, we can demonstrate. He at least knew one of his victims, and maybe more, and at least one and maybe more of the shootings were deliberate target hits. And put together, that knocks down the entire original theory of the Zodiac killings. The genesis of Zodiac coincided with the growth of satanic cults throughout California. The Process Church of the Final Judgment and its secret splinter groups, as well as Alistair Crowley's OTO, were active in the Bay Area. Now it can be told as learned that Zodiac victim Darlene Farron was seduced by the powerful lure of the occult and drugs in Haight-Ashbury, and that blackmail may have been a motive for her targeted death. Either one of these factors, drugs or the occult, were responsible for her death. In the occult, she might have learned something, seen something, that made it too dangerous for her to be allowed to remain alive. 
The oldest of ten children, Darlene grew up in the vibrant post-war atmosphere of Vallejo. At 19, she married a violent man with a criminal history. They lived in San Francisco, a 60s mecca that beckoned the flower children of the hippie generation. You don't know what we can find. Why don't you come with me, little girl, on a magic carpet ride? Now it can be told as discovered that Darlene joined a cult, and she and her husband, along with two cult members, left San Francisco and hitchhiked across the United States. A close friend says that Darlene returned home unexpectedly. Well, when I asked her why they were back so early, she said they had gotten into some trouble and that she had saw something she, they had saw something that they shouldn't have seen. Former Vallejo police officer Steve Baldino told now that Darlene may have witnessed a ritual murder by a fellow cult member. Her younger sister Pam says that Darlene spoke freely to many about the killing, including Vallejo cops. When the occult thing started to hitting our family and everyone, maybe she had witnessed a killing uh, down in San Francisco. And then it even crossed all of our mind that she had seen Betty Lou Jensen get killed on Lake Herman Road. Betty Lou was Zodiac's first victim in Vallejo. Regardless of where Darlene saw the murder, sources tell now that she may have been blackmailing the killer and that she was being followed around Vallejo. One night, Dee and I were getting off work and somebody was following us and we, you know, drove fast around corners and to try to lose them and all of a sudden that car was not there anymore, you know. And she said, oh, I, I'm followed all the time, you know. She knew somebody was watching her. I think she knows the person that was watching her. The mysterious stranger often appeared at Terry's restaurant where Darlene was a waitress. Retired Vallejo detective Ed Rust worked on the investigation. He wouldn't ever talk with anybody except Darlene. She'd wait on him and then she, she got to where she just stayed away from him and didn't want anybody else talking to him or anything. And we never were able to identify that, that person. Witnesses also told now of a second shadowy figure, perhaps the same man, perhaps not, who delivered packages from Mexico to Darlene's home. It is thought that the parcels contain either drugs or money. At the end, she seemed to have more money than what she ever had. She was buying her clothes from an expensive place in Vallejo and just had more money. By 1967, Darlene was divorced, and in July of that year, she remarried and soon had a baby. But Darlene still had a wild side. She was a very attractive young waitress who, uh, through her contacts with customers at uh, Terry's restaurant, uh, became very popular, dated many gentlemen, including even uh, about half a dozen police officers. A former Vallejo police officer who refused to appear on camera told now that he and Darlene were lovers. He said the affair ended just before she was murdered. Her friends knew she was dating, popping pills, and making frequent trips to San Francisco. And then, the night before her death, she made a cryptic comment, predicting that something big was about to happen in the small town of Vallejo. As she told her mother, you're going to read about me in the papers tomorrow. And it never was uh, really uh, determined what she meant by that. It could have been a, a premonition. If so, the premonition was about to become a tragic reality. Who killed Darlene Ferrin? Our theory is that the answer to that one single question could be the key that unlocks the entire mystery of the Zodiac. She was the key to this whole thing. She gave him that name, Zodiac. The murder of the woman who knew too much and the paroled killer 
who may know even more. Baker told the cops, quote, I have a problem, I'm a cannibal. That's next, as we continue our hunt for the maniac in the mask. Continuing our exclusive look now into the monstrous Zodiac murders, Alexander Johnson picks up the story with the murder of Darlene Ferrin. Geraldo, on July 4th, 1969, Darlene and her companion, Mike Majot, were shot while sitting in a parked car. Police believe they were random victims of a psychopathic maniac. But now it can be told us uncovered new and critical evidence that they were, in fact, target hits. And that information could lead to a solution of the Zodiac killings. Retired San Francisco homicide inspector John Fotinos. It, it doesn't appear to be a random killing because from the witness, the, uh, the perpetrator went up to her side of the door on the driver's side and called her D, which was her, uh, her nickname apparently. And Ed Rust, who worked on Darlene's case, now believes she was a target hit. I can almost see it as, as a quite likely a plan, a methodical plan to cover up uh, not only Darlene's, but it's quite likely that some of these other Zodiac uh, killings, uh, to my way of thinking, may have uh, involved other uh, motives, and they were done in such a manner as to make it appear a random killing. Item. 90 minutes before she was shot, Darlene argued with an unidentified man outside Terry's restaurant. Item, returning home, Darlene's babysitter told her an older man had been phoning her all evening. Item, an ominous note in Darlene's handwriting was found by her phone. She had scrawled the words, hacked, stuck, testified. Item, Darlene rushed to Mike Majot's home from where the pair was followed to the murder scene. Darlene had to be lured into that parking lot the way that she was found. The driver's license in her hand, the ignition of the car still going, the headlights still going, but the car had died. She was deliberate. She was the key to this whole thing. She gave him that name, Zodiac. Mike Majot survived Zodiac's attack and gave a description of the shooter. However, he later changed key parts of his story, left Vallejo, and has avoided public comment for the past 22 years. I don't think he's telling the truth. Uh, I, I think, uh, and I always have thought, there's, there's something that he's holding back, uh, whether it's from uh, a more, you know, bigger degree of his involvement in whatever happened, or just plain pure fear. After the shooting, police received anonymous tips regarding Darlene's involvement with an occult group, but investigators uh, disregarded the leads. Some of the hippies in San Francisco, they, they used to phone me once in a while and tell me that she was involved with a witch but they would never identify the witch or um, and they wouldn't identify themselves either so I had no way of checking on it our investigation shows not only that Darlene knew her killer but that there indeed was an occult connection to her murder and to the entire Zodiac case police have told me recently that our investigation has turned up some of the best new information that they've heard in years about the case and there's also a possible connection between the Zodiac killing at Lake Berryessa and a cult group to which a convicted satanic killer by the name of Stanley Dean Baker belonged. At Lake Berryessa, Zodiac, dressed in an Aleister Crowley-type ritual costume, told his victims that he was an escaped convict from tiny Deer Lodge, Montana, where in fact there is a state prison. Baker was convicted of a satanic killing not far from Deer Lodge, in which he cut out the victim's heart and ate it.
According to San Francisco police, Baker also committed a grisly ritual murder in that city in April of 1970. The victim, Robert Salem, was a prominent lamp designer. There was numerous stab wounds around the body and torso, and then uh, on the wall, in blood, somebody had written, Satan saves, and it appeared to be a zodiac sign also. Baker was released after serving less than 15 years for the Montana murder. He was never indicted for the San Francisco killing, even though police say his bloody fingerprints were found at the scene. At the time, Mr. Baker was doing 25 to life, so the district attorney felt that uh, at that point, uh, there was no reason to bring him down to San Francisco and try him for this murder. Baker's cult, as well as several others, were active in the Bay Area at the time of the Zodiac. There's a strong Aleister Crowley influence in this case. I would focus on individuals or groups that were very enamored of Crowley's philosophies. In addition to Zodiac's costume and the Crowley phrases in his letters, we have discovered a remarkable similarity between Zodiac's symbol and Crowley's rose cross symbol, which is intended to make one invisible to his enemies and sometimes also calls for blood sacrifices. So what have we learned from the now investigation? Well, one, Darlene Farron, rather than being a random victim, knew her killer. Two, there was a motive for her murder, which involved drugs, the occult, or both. And three, the key to the entire Zodiac puzzle lies in the events of her life and death. I would say four. Here you have a cannibal killer, Stanley Dean Baker, receiving parole. I mean, can you believe that they have paroled this monster and that he's back out on the streets? In a moment, we'll take the results of our investigation and try to arrive at a solution to this decades-old mystery. This 21-year-old magazine asked the question, has the Zodiac killer trapped himself? Well, we'll find out in a moment. But first, let's take a look at what's coming up on the next edition of Now It Can Be. Joining me now is Alexander Johnson and our crime reporter, Maury Terry. Alexander, was the cannibal killer, the Stanley Dean Baker, ever questioned as a suspect in the Zodiac Not case? at all. Not that we know of, no. Do we know where this monster is? He, we think he's in Minnesota. Just, uh, what, living a quiet life? Quiet life. Okay, maybe, exactly. maybe he's your milkman. Uh, do we have real suspects, Maury? Can we tell the folks at home that we have some people identified? Is Stanley Dean Baker, for example, a suspect? I think people within Stanley Dean Baker's satanic cult, cult group could legitimately be considered suspects. Also, we have identified three other people that I could safely call possible suspects at this time. People Darlene Ferrin knew closely in Vallejo. She was hanging around with the cops. She was found dead. She had her license out. The headlights were on. Uh, does that indicate to you that possibly cops were involved in the thing? I think that's an interesting question, and I think the answer to that is quite possibly yes. She was dating cops. She was seeing cops. Zodiac used some police techniques in his attacks, and there, were, there was cop jargon in some of the Zodiac letters. So quite possibly yes. Are you going to turn this information over to the local authorities? We intend to and have been talking to them behind the scenes anyway to this point. Okay, I promise you folks that we are going to stay on top of this. You know, this magazine, this 20-year-old magazine, uh, says in here, uh, you know, that this guy is jeering at police after each slaughter. It's too late for his victims, but if the authorities take a look at some of this evidence and refocus their efforts, perhaps society will have the last laugh. Remember me? No, I don't. Come here. 
A grieving young woman confronts the one man who may know the identity of her sister's killer. You can't tell me you can't, Mike. I know you know who did it. I know you do. The maniac she's trying to track down is the Zodiac, one of America's most notorious serial killers. A deadly phantom who's eluded cops for more than 20 years. Now this woman's detective work. It took me all this time to find you, and I want you to help me, and I know you can. And a little sleuthing of our own may finally pay off. Mike Mijot may know much more than he's told the police. Now it can be told as we follow the sign of the Zodiac to the man who knew too much. Welcome everybody, I'm Geraldo Rivera, high in the hills over Hollywood. From here you can actually look down and see the stars. And we'll be doing a lot of that later in the program. But up front today, a story that began 300 miles north of here. Several months ago, you may recall, an intensive, now it can be told, investigation revealed that San Francisco's infamous Zodiac killer did not choose his victims at random, as the police originally believed. We discovered evidence showing involvement with drugs, the occult, and even the grim possibility of an accomplice. Well, we've continued to look into this 20-year-old mystery, and now we've zeroed in on the one man who may actually know the identity of the maniac. Our Alexander Johnson picks up the trail with the help of one of the victim's sisters. Geraldo, the most important finding in our first report was that Zodiac knew at least one of his victims, a 22-year-old waitress named Darlene Farron. There was a motive behind her killing, which means there is a trail, a trail that could finally lead to the capture of the elusive Zodiac. In the late 60s and early 70s, a deranged phantom calling himself the Zodiac wrote taunting letters to the California press and police. He typically struck at night in deserted lovers' lanes. But in one instance, he executed a cab driver on a San Francisco street. And in another, he donned a ritual costume and ravaged two students with a knife near a lake in broad daylight. There were five known dead and maybe more, and two seriously wounded. Numerous police jurisdictions were involved in the manhunt. We focused on Zodiac's second attack, the murder of Darlene Farron, and the wounding of her companion, Mike Majol, shot in a golf course parking lot in the San Francisco suburb of Vallejo at midnight on July 4, 1969. Now investigative reporter, Maury Terry. Someone Darlene knew and feared had been following her around Vallejo for months, and that last night she had an argument in the parking lot outside the restaurant where she worked with an unidentified man. From there, she hurried home and then rushed over to Mike Majol's house from where the two were followed or maybe even chased out to that parking lot where the shooting went down. It certainly was not a random hit. And it seems pretty clear that Mike Majot may know much more than he has told the police. Majot has been in hiding for more than 20 years. We obtained this exclusive undercover video after months of tracking him. In an emotional and dramatic meeting, Darlene Farron's sister, Pam Huckabee, approached a man she hadn't seen in more than two decades. Hi, Mike. Hi. Do you remember me? No, I don't. Come here. Darlene's sister, Pam. Oh, hi, Pam. I'd like to talk to you. No, Mike, there was a man that Darlene was very afraid of. The, that hung around Darlene. That uh, I got to meet. That I got to see around her. And I believe you know who he is. Do you? Yeah, I don't know a lot of that. so long ago. I don't remember a lot of his names. It took me all this time to find you. And I want you to help me. And I know you can. You can't tell me you can't. You can't tell me you can't, Mike. I know you know who did it. I know you do. But Majol was not helpful. Retired Vallejo detective Ed Rust worked the case and is convinced that Majol knew more. 
I don't think he's telling the truth. Uh, I, I think, uh, and I, I always have thought there's there's something that he's holding back, uh, whether it's from uh, a more, you know, bigger degree of his involvement in whatever happened or just plain pure fear. It was Majot who told the police that the gunman caused Arlene by her nickname before firing. After her death, there were rumors that she knew about drug dealing in Vallejo, that she belonged to a cult group, had seen a murder, and was killed for that reason. We confirmed that Darlene was immersed in the occult and made frequent trips to San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district, a mecca for Satanism and witchcraft. Not only Darlene's, but it's quite likely that some of these other Zodiac uh, killings, uh, to my way of thinking, may have uh, involved other uh, motives and they were done in such a manner as to make it appear a random killing and really what better way to divert attention indeed the police were diverted at least publicly after the fern major shooting zodiac called the vallejo pd claiming credit for that attack and won six months earlier on a high school couple for years authorities have asserted that there is no recording of that call yet at one time there was former vallejo patrolman steve baldino i heard the tape um, this dispatcher let me hear it. I believe it was the next night. Um, apparently that tape is no longer there. But it, it did in fact exist because I did hear it. So where is that tape and why did it mysteriously disappear? Baldino acknowledges some corruption in his department in that era. There was talk about uh, individuals selling or using narcotics. There was talk about a burglary ring going on. Um, there were also a couple of officers who were fired over a relationship with a 14-year-old girl. At least one of those officers was questioned about his relationship with Darlene. Although Darlene was married, she often dated other men, especially cops. So was it possible that police were somehow involved in her death? At the Ferrin Majot shooting, the Zodiac approached with a flashlight, just like a cop would. And at the other Vallejo shooting, although it hadn't been made public before, a witness saw the perp's car just minutes before the shots rang out and described it as being dark colored with no chrome, which is highly suggestive of an unmarked police vehicle. That other Vallejo shooting was a double homicide. The victims, a high school couple, Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday. As in the Farron Majot attack, we have uncovered a possible motive for this supposedly random assault. The late John Lynch, a retired Vallejo detective, talked about victim Faraday. This kid had found out somewhere or another that about some narcotics transaction that had taken place. And he was telling other kids about it and they just eliminated him. Arthur Allen has been the Vallejo Police Department's number one suspect for more than 20 years. Even though virtually no other agency involved believes he is the Zodiac. I'm not the Zodiac. I've never killed anyone. There are other investigators who have built credible cases for other suspects, including former police officers. But no one in authority has seriously followed up on those potentially valuable leads, let alone travel the road that may end at police complicity. So until the official investigation switches to the issues of motive and other suspects, the star-cross hunt for the Zodiac will continue. Summer 1977. In the city of New York, a year-long nightmare was coming to an end. On August 10th, a man named David Berkowitz was arrested. Police believed that he was a lone gunman behind the Son of Sam killings, a brutal series of shootings that had left six people dead and seven seriously injured.
the media rejoiced. The elusive son of Sam was behind bars. Or was he? The general perception among the public for years had been that David Berkowitz was a lone gunman. The facts and the evidence, not speculation, the facts and the evidence say otherwise. In 1977, the nation believed the son of Sam murders were solved. In the last 11 years, reporter Maury Terry has collected convincing evidence that David Berkowitz did not act alone. Tonight, we examine Terry's theories and present other mysteries where you may be able to help. In a tiny Baptist church in rural Georgia, a deacon and his wife were the victims of a double murder. The killer dropped a pair of glasses that may lead to his identity. And from Omaha, Nebraska, a poignant story of unrequited love and a frugal bachelor who left an unclaimed fortune of $200,000. Someone watching tonight may be his heir. Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Son of Sam's reign of terror began on July 29, 1976. It occurred in an area in the Bronx called Pelham Bay. The time was 1.10 AM. Two young girls were hit by 44 caliber bullets. One died. A composite sketch of the gunman was created from the survivor's eyewitness description. On October 23rd, in the borough of Queens, another 44 caliber shooting occurred. A man suffered a serious head injury. A month later, again in Queens, two girls stood on a stoop talking. A man appeared out of the shadows. Both survived. One would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Eyewitnesses were able to help police in creating a new composite of the gunman. 1977. Two separate shootings took the lives of two women. As in the earlier attacks, a 44 caliber Bulldog revolver was used. Eyewitnesses created two more composites of the killer. They showed a very different face from the earlier drawings. Each appeared to be a different person. On April 17, 1977, another shooting occurred, again in the Pelham Bay section of the Bronx, just three blocks from the scene of the first shooting. This time, a hand-printed letter was left at the scene. It read, quote, I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I'm a little brat. The city was paralyzed with fear. The people in the local neighborhoods, particularly in the Bronx, were petrified. Um, I remember people yelling to people in the street, get in, that nut's out there. And this is an, an early afternoon. No one double parked their cars. Um, business at the local entertainment places, such as bars, restaurants, were nil. No one went out. On Memorial Day, another letter from the son of Sam was sent to columnist Jimmy Breslin. Written in the same distinctive style, it contained taunts and references to Satanism. Finally, on July 31st, son of Sam struck for the last time. Stacy Moskowitz was killed. Her date, Robert Violante, partially blinded. No, he just, he just walked up to them, shot them. A 19-year-old mechanic named Tommy Zeno was an eyewitness. That guy came over, 
to the to the car and blew those people away in less than four seconds. Like, you know, you pre press the trigger and then both would, you know, both could have died. Luckily, Robert's alive, but I'll never forget it. Zeno gave police a description of the shooter. Another composite was created, showing the gunman. Again, there were more differences and similarities when compared to the earlier drawings. One of them or two looked like uh, David Berkowitz. The others did not resemble him at all. It was completely uh, different. Uh, I thought it was rather strange, although we know that these drawings are done by victims or witnesses who see the killer for a brief period of time. And then a day or two or several hours later, they have to go to a police department artist, and he has to put that on paper. That's a very difficult thing to do. So many times, these sketches are not very accurate. So I thought perhaps maybe that's why we saw so many different versions of the Son of Sam on the composites. In their investigation of the Moskowitz shooting, Police discovered a parking ticket had been issued near the scene to a Ford Galaxy owned by a postal employee named David Berkowitz. Took off right back into the, park. the police traced this ticket to Berkowitz's home. As they approached the building, they saw the car. They spotted a duffel bag with what looked like a rifle butt protruding through the opening. When they entered the car, they found a letter threatening another attack. It was signed, Son of Sam. John, look at this. We got him. Let's head back to these and get a warrant for this. The police staked out the Ford Galaxy, waiting for its owner to emerge. At 10 p.m., Berkowitz walked to the car. Inside the brown paper bag he was carrying, there was a 44 caliber revolver. As detectives moved into arrest him, he sat in his Ford Galaxy, almost passively. What took you guys so long? Step out of the car. Berkowitz confessed to all of the shootings. He told the police that he received his orders to commit the crimes from the barking dog of an elderly neighbor named Sam Carr. Berkowitz pleaded guilty to all the charges against him. He was sentenced to 25 years to life New York's Attica prison. But to Maury Terry, his confession seemed too convenient. After the arrest of Berkowitz, uh, just through fate or whatever, I started poking around into the case uh, because I had some suspicions that uh, maybe there was more to it than the public was being, uh, being led to believe. And that's when I started my own investigation in, into the case, right really the day after Berkowitz got arrested. Maury Terry believes that David Berkowitz did not act alone, that he was part of a gang of killers, and it was the killing of Stacy Moskowitz that first aroused his suspicions. Next, we will go through a step-by-step -step reconstruction of the events leading to the killing of Stacy Moskowitz. Maury Terry believes that this last killing was deliberately planned and executed, not just by David Berkowitz, but by at least three people. And he says that there is eyewitness testimony to corroborate this theory. Well, the very early reports that um, on the Moskowitz killing had me concerned. David Berkowitz's resemblance, his, his features were widely different from the sketches of the killer that had been done by the police artist. Started seeking out witnesses, found Tommy Zeno, who was a key witness in the, to the shooting. 
Tommy Zeno was with his girlfriend parked on Shore Parkway in front of the car that held Stacy Moskowitz and her boyfriend. I was looking through the mirror in the car, and I see I noticed somebody, you know, standing in the park. What I seen is he had long hair, and it's hard to really see the face, but it was, he was thin. He looked like he was in pretty good shape. From looking through the mirror when he was into the, in the park, the guy that came over to the car, he walked up to the car like as if he was gonna get in the car. And then he went into a stand, shot, and that was it. Turned around and ran. I can't picture Berkowitz running like that. That's the thing that confused me after they caught him. If they seen him, it's either he was, he, you know, in a week he can't get that fat, you know? He, that's all I could say. He's, he's, you know, he didn't look like the type of guy to run and do that. This is a map showing the neighborhood where the last killing occurred. Stacy Moskowitz and her boyfriend were parked here. Two blocks away on Bay 17th Street, David Berkowitz received the incriminating parking ticket on his Ford Galaxy parked here. According to Terry, the events leading up to the shooting began here at the Shore Parkway entrance to the park at about 1 a.m. Witnesses saw a yellow Volkswagen arrive at the park entrance. Two men emerged. The same car was seen fleeing the crime scene after the shootings. 30 minutes later, Tommy Zeno noticed the yellow Volkswagen drive past more than once. A half hour later, at 2.05, a policeman issued a parking ticket to Berkowitz's Ford Galaxy. A neighborhood resident named Cecilia Davis pulled up in a friend's car just ahead of Berkowitz's Ford. She then said goodbye to her friend. We were triple parked, and I was looking in the, in the back so in case a car comes up, I saw that guy taking the summons off his windshield and keep on looking, watching the cops as they still gave tickets. Then he got in the car and he came behind us. He couldn't pass because we were blocking the whole street. And he blowed the horn on us. So I got out and I took a look at him. More or less, I gave him a dirty look. What's the big Russian mill in the night? Cecilia has identified the man in the car as David Berkowitz. After she left her friend, she saw Berkowitz drive up Bay 17th Street and turn right on Bath, following the police. The fact that David Berkowitz uh, pulled up behind Mrs. Davis and her date as he did, uh, with the police car still on the block or just pulling off the block, blaring his horn, he would not be doing something like that if he's the elusive and genius son of Sam carrying that 44 bulldog in his car. He would, he would try to be as stealthy as possible. 15 minutes after the parking ticket was issued, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante went for a late night stroll. As they walked in a nearby park, Stacy and Robert saw a man standing next to a restroom watching them. This restroom was over two blocks from Cecilia Davis's apartment. At 2.33 a.m., Mrs. Davis returned to her apartment after walking her dog. She saw David Berkowitz 
man who had honked earlier, walking straight towards her. I know it was the same guy because I saw him when I got out of the car for my friend. I looked at him because he blowed a horn. Cecilia saw Berkowitz here, over two blocks away from where Stacy and Robert were parked. Approximately one minute later in her apartment, Cecilia heard the sounds of gunfire in the distance. Those four shots killed Stacy Moskowitz and almost blinded Robert Violante. How could Berkowitz have traveled from this spot where Cecilia last saw him to this area where Stacy and Robert were shot in one minute when it takes at least two and a half minutes to briskly walk the two blocks from Bay 17th Street to the park? Just 15 seconds after the shooting, witnesses saw a man wearing a cheap, light-colored wig run out of the park, get into a yellow Volkswagen, and speed away up 17th Avenue. In his haste, he ran a red light and narrowly missed colliding with another car. Maury Terry believes that at least three people, including David Berkowitz, were involved in the Moskowitz killing. He claims they were members of an organized conspiracy responsible for every single one of the Son of Sam shootings. David Berkowitz was selected to be the fall guy on the Son of Sam killings. Um, he was not a willing fall guy. He wanted it to be another way. But Berkowitz knew that he had been involved in all of the shootings. Uh, he has uh, pulled the trigger definitely two times, responsible for three murders. He's not an innocent man and was on the scene of all the others as a lookout, a wheelman, whatever. Uh, so Berkowitz was involved, and Berkowitz knew he was guilty. He also was responsible for getting a parking ticket on his car that night, which also made him susceptible to be the guy to be picked out to take the fall. And on top of that, the real killer escaped in the yellow Volkswagen, and that person was deemed more valuable to the conspirators than David Berkowitz was. No, I didn't think it was David Berkowitz then, and I don't think it's him now. Definitely don't think it's him. It has crossed my mind, and it's a strong opinion of mine, that David Berkowitz was not the sole killer and was aided by other accomplices. We um, received information that um, other people may have been involved. I had a statement made to me by someone who allegedly spoke to David Berkowitz, uh, wherein David Berkowitz is supposed to have stated that others were involved. New York prosecutor John Santucci has moved the status of the Son of Sam investigation from inactive to active. Next week, last week, we examined the Son of Sam shootings that took place in New York in 1976 and 1977. Investigative reporter Maury Terry believes that the Son of Sam did not act alone, that he was part of an organized conspiracy that carried out a year-long reign of terror in New York City. The Son of Sam shootings began on July 29, 1976. In eight separate incidents, six people were killed and seven seriously wounded. All of the shots were fired by a 44 caliber revolver. Police created composites from eyewitness accounts of the shootings. The difference in appearance suggested more than one suspect. But on August 10th, David Berkowitz was arrested and confessed to all of the Son of Sam shootings. 
Investigative reporter Maury Terry gathered evidence that indicated that more than one man was involved. The general perception among the public for years had been that David Berkowitz was a lone gunman. The facts and the evidence, not speculation, the facts and the evidence say otherwise. Terry found major discrepancies in eyewitness accounts of the last shooting that support his theory of more than one gunman. Eyewitness Tommy Zeno was parked just in front of the victim's car, and he got a good look at the gun. No, I didn't think it was David Berkowitz then, and I don't think it's him now. I definitely don't think it's him. A yellow Volkswagen had been spotted leaving the crime scene. It may have contained one or more accomplices to the shooting. Columnist Jimmy Breslin received a letter from the son of Sam. In this letter, there were cryptic references to the, quote, 22 disciples of hell and a wicked King Wicker. John Wheaties, the rapist and suffocator of young girls, was also mentioned. The letter was signed, the son of Sam. Underneath was a satanic symbol. Maury Terry believes that the Breslin letter was sent not by Berkowitz, but rather by a satanic cult that operated in Berkowitz's Yonkers neighborhood. He also believes that Berkowitz was a member of the cult, and that it was this group that planned and executed the Son of Sam attacks. David Berkowitz lived in a seventh floor apartment in Yonkers. Down the hill was a street named Wicker. Could this be the King Wicker mentioned in the Breslin letter? Wicker Street was near the home of another character believed to be mentioned in the letter, John Wheaties. I learned that the John Wheaties rapist and suffocator, alias of the killer in the Breslin letter, was not really an alias at all, but it was the name of a real person. That person was John Carr, who was the real-life son of Sam Carr. John Carr's nickname was Wheaties, and I learned this within a day of the arrest. And from then on, uh, I became deeper and deeper involved in the case. Uh, trying to locate John Carr. This is the face of John Carr. And these are the composite drawings of the 44 caliber killers. Maury Terry believes that there is a resemblance between these two and John Carr. Terry tracked John Carr to Minot, North Dakota, where he had worked as a mechanic at a local Air Force base. Though he lived in Minot during the mid-70s, Carr frequently commuted to New York during the time of the Son of Sam attacks. Well, from my experience, John Carr was a mixed-up drug addict. He was hanging around with the group of people that were uh, on the other side of the law all the time. John Carr, many, many months before Berkowitz was ever arrested, had talked about his friend Berkey to his friends out in Minot, North Dakota. John Carr was a friend of a confidant of and an associate of David Berkowitz. On February 17, 1978, six months after Berkowitz's arrest, John Carr was found dead in his girlfriend's Minot apartment. When I first walked in the room, it was a ghastly sight. Obviously, the guy had sat on the edge of the bed, put the gun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. My first interview with his live-in girlfriend at the time, she told me that he must have just taken his own life. The next day, same person, new interview, whole new story. John Carr had to have been murdered. He was wanted by the police in New York for the Son of Sam killings. He was afraid for his life. And I fully believe that John Carr was murdered. 
through interviews with uh, Carr's friends and the police officials in North Dakota, uh, the picture emerged of John Carr being heavily involved in satanic cult activity, both in Minot, North Dakota, and in Westchester County, New York, where he spent part of his time. Uh, it involved blood drinking, urine drinking, the ritualistic sacrifice of animals, specifically German shepherds, uh, all sorts of, of ver rather horrible activity that certain satanic cults get into. The satanic symbol found on the Breslin letter, directly under the signature of Son of Sam, was also found inscribed on Carr's Minot phone book. One of Carr's Minot acquaintances was a man named Phil Falcon. Falcon accidentally walked in on John Carr and a companion performing a satanic ritual. Phil Falcon told us that he walked into his own house one night in North Dakota and found John Carr and another friend of Carr's, part of the circle, in the act of ritualistically sacrificing an animal right in Falcon's uh, house. And Phil Falcon also told us that John Carr belonged to a very, very violent satanic cult. Prison sources who knew Berkowitz told Maury Terry that Berkowitz had been introduced to this cult by John Carr's brother, Michael, in 1975. Michael Carr ended up inviting Berkowitz to attend what he called a floating coven party. And uh, Berkowitz came in and attended the party, and symbolically, not literally, but symbolically, the 44 was put into his hand that night. That's how he got in to the, into the cult scene. At 4 a.m. on October 4, 1979, over two years after Berkowitz's arrest, Michael Carr was killed. He was driving at a high rate of speed when he crashed into a light post on New York's West Side Highway. He died just 18 months after his brother. How many members of this devilish cult? Conclusive proof that Berkowitz knew both John and Michael Carr came during two of his depositions on October 25th, 1978. When asked point blank whether he knew John Carr, he answered, yes. Yes. In another deposition taken on January 19, 1982, Berkowitz was asked if the cars were part of a satanic cult. He also answered, yes. When asked whether the brothers were killed to ensure their silence, Berkowitz again responded, yes. Maury Terry believes that the death of the cars may have been engineered by the, quote, 22 disciples of hell mentioned in the Breslin letter. He also believes this is a satanic group that held the rituals in Untermeyer Park, located just one mile from Berkowitz's apartment. It's right up ahead, right there. On August 11, 1977, the day after Berkowitz's arrest, two young boys led police to a grave that contained the bodies of three German shepherds. Two of them had been strangled with chains. One had been shot in the head. At least 10 other slaughtered dogs had been found in the park area. We received information that groups of people who attired themselves in black or dark colored robes with hoods were chanting, carrying on subtypes of rituals on the aqueduct in the rear of Untermeyer Park. Subsequently, the authorities did find some remains of dogs and uh, the information that we had was that this group of uh, people were 
sacrificing animals in a satanic ritual. I got a call from a young boy in Yonkers, 15-year-old high school sophomore, wanted to know if I knew that there was a satanic cult that was meeting uh, in Untermeyer Park in Yonkers and killing dogs. And so I met him down there, which is just about a mile from Berkowitz's uh, residence, and he took me around to various spots in Undermeyer Park, showed me where the cult was meeting. We saw all the satanic graffiti, very sophisticated graffiti at the time, and uh, took me throughout the park. Over here on the other side of the wall, I had found three dead dogs. Saw the remains of probably uh, two or three German, dead German shepherds right there at that time. And he took me along the aqueduct, literally the gutters of NYC from the Breslin letter, and showed me where they had set up an altar. They had an altar. They had, they placed the altar uh, board right over here in between the two trees. Uh -huh. And, they had and now we chair, had the cult and we knew where it was meeting and we could tie it right to the Son of Sam case and the Son of Sam letter. It was a very significant development in the case. You'd like to see uh, your case is resolved with a conviction or an acquittal or no case or whatever. But it's when you have these constant doubts, who else was involved? Uh, were there others involved and to what extent? Will they do it again? You see, that becomes the, uh, the overriding concern. If there is someone out there who was involved in the Berkowitz cases, in the killing of a number of people and the wounding of a number of people, and that person is bent on doing the same thing again, then the public's in jeopardy. And so certainly I would like to have that solved and get that person out of the way. Cult activity has continued around Untermeyer Park since the Son of Sam killings. While we were filming, two local residents told us they had witnessed a satanic ceremony in 1987. Uh, about a year and a half ago, me and my cousin were watching TV and we saw a car headlights go by on the aqueduct path. When my cousin took a flashlight and I took on a baseball bat, and walked up through my yard onto the aqueduct path. There must have been about 15 to 30 people. And there was one guy, and he must have been like the head chanter or something, because he was just chanting the loudest over the other people. We just froze. We didn't know what to do, because we'd never encountered something like this before. We both decided just to get out of there. We didn't want to get seen, because you don't know what people like that will do. But I think it would serve the public interest for us to know if, in fact, a cult does exist, if, in fact, they engage in satanic activities, if, in fact, sacrifice is part of that activity, if, in fact, human life is the sacrificial aspect of that activity, and how it's impacting upon uh, life in our respective communities. The Queens District Attorney would like to question the individuals that match these composites they would also like to locate the yellow 1971 Volkswagen, noticed at the scene of one of the Son of Sam attacks. Its license ends with the letters G-U-R or G-V-R. If Maury Terry is correct, the satanic group responsible for the Son of Sam attacks is still alive, still meeting, and still recruiting new members. If this last claim is true, certainly that is the most disturbing thought of all.